0: Let me take your seats. Good morning. I'm Pastor Clint, and I'm the family pastor here. And it's my privilege to be kicking off our psalm series. We'll be in throughout this summer. And our first psalm we start out with is Psalm 84. So if you have your Bible with you, please turn in it to Psalm chapter 84. And we will be walking through that one today. As you're turning over there, one term that you often hear in Christian discourse and dialogue is the word blessing. Perhaps it's appropriate that we talk about blessing often, of course, because God blesses us. He does good things for us. And yet it's a, it's a malleable term. It gets used in a lot of ways. Something good will happen, and we'll say it's such a blessing. We'll talk about blessing others. You'll hear some preachers describe the blessed life, living that blessed life right now, And even outside of Christianity, we've been sort of conditioned to be a little suspicious in the South when we hear, oh, bless your heart, right? We know there might be more going on. And then you take the phenomenon to social media, and you've got the hashtag blessed phenomenon. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? This is when someone will post something, and they put hashtag blessed, sort of positioning their post as representative of blessings in their life. I hopped onto Instagram this week, and I searched hashtag blessed and found 147 million results. The world is talking about blessing. The world is interested in blessing. Though one interesting thing, when you scroll through these posts, you very rarely see people at their worst with this hashtag. As one person I read put it, you never see hashtag cursed. You know, someone like crashes their car and snaps a picture of the dent and is like, worst day ever, hashtag cursed that never happens. And yet, we all have days like that, don't we? So it raises a philosophical and, and biblical question. What is the blessed life? What does blessing actually look like? Well, Psalm 84 is going to help frame that for us. The word blessed appears at three points in the psalm, in verse 4, verse 5, and verse 12, each depicting what a blessed one is like. And we're going to pull these together and discover something Perhaps profound, wildly countercultural, and I hope for us this morning, deeply rewarding. And it's this The blessed life, the good life, is not about having everything you ever wanted, it's about having God. Blessing is found in the precious presence of God. But before we go any further, let's stop and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is sufficient for us, that it is authoritative. Lord, it gives us exactly what we need. Everything pertaining to life and godliness is here. May we respond to it with humility, respond to conviction through obedience. Lord, may we be shaped and changed by your spirit. Father, we also pray for Pastor Justin Pearson at Restore Church in Albuquerque. Be with that brother and that congregation as they exalt you today. May they continue to be a light in their community for you. In your name we pray, amen. We're going to look at three sections today in Psalm 84 to frame these different portions of blessing. And the first in verses 1 to 4 is this, our delight is in the Lord. The blessed life involves delighting in the very presence of God. And the first way we're going to see that, more specifically, is we delight in worshiping God in His presence. Let's read verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 84. The psalmist writes, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Right out the gate, you can see why in the main idea we said the precious presence. Because the presence of God is so precious to this psalmist. He describes the dwelling place of God as lovely. It's beautiful to him. It's valuable to him. It's clear that the psalmist finds it precious. Verse 2, however, gives a slightly different sense. You have a sense of longing, of yearning, of anticipation. Now, some context that's going to help us understand this is that it is very likely Psalm 84 was written for festival worshipers, which means that Israelites— would stop their work, perhaps in a field, and begin making a pilgrimage, a trek, to the city of Jerusalem into the temple for festival worship. And so when you read verses 1 and 2, you can put yourselves in the feet of an Israelite, a pilgrim, beginning his journey to Jerusalem, and he says, I long to get there and worship. I long to enter into the temple. I long to proclaim who God is, to adore him, to exalt him. But of course, you and I, we're not making regular pilgrimages to the temple for Hebrew festival worship. And so we need to take a step back for a moment and think about the significance of God's presence in our lives from a New Testament perspective. So let's just real, real briefly sort of sketch why it's significant. We find that it's inherent to the gospel. You go back to Genesis. Remember, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. The garden of Eden was the unique presence of God with his people. And so when Adam and Eve sin in chapter 3, we discover that they're evicted from the garden and we're told they're sent away from the presence of the Lord. The same language shows up in chapter 4 after Cain murders Abel. He's sent away from the presence of the Lord. So we understand that sin fundamentally, what sin does is it leads to death and separation from a holy God. God cannot abide sin. And so sin then created an expectation, an anticipation through the Old Testament, where the people were waiting, how can we be back in the presence of God? There is this desire to dwell with God again, which makes God's appearances throughout the Bible so significant. All the shadows and types and all the ways that God appears to his people continue to point to this need to dwell with God. You think particularly of God appearing in Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 as he makes this promise with Israel. Promises that follow with the other covenants pointing towards dwelling once again with God. And it's why it makes it even more special that God manifests himself and appears through a baby in a manger. And through the Incarnation, we have the presence of God through Jesus Christ. And Jesus does something remarkable. Through Jesus Christ's death on the cross, He allows believers, those who repent from their sin and put faith in Him, to enter into spiritual presence with Him. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit indwells the believer, is we have the presence of God. And not only do we have the present presence of God through salvation, but what do we look forward to? It's how the Bible concludes in Revelation 21. We see that the dwelling place of God will be with man. He will dwell with his people, and God will be with them as their God. So brothers and sisters, when we look at verses 1 and 2, do we have a reason to view his presence as precious? Can we not also say that the presence of God is lovely? His dwelling place is precious because it's become our hearts. His dwelling place is precious because it'll be the eternal kingdom that we are in through Christ. We can say that his presence is lovely. And we're moved to do the same thing in the presence of God that the psalmist is moved to in the back half of verse 2. Which he says, My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. We are moved to worship. The psalmist can't help but control his emotions here. He says, when I get into the presence of God, I have to sing praises. I have to express the joy I have to the living God. The living God separates him from anything else claiming to be a deity. He is the one true living God. He alone deserves our praise. Do you delight in worshiping God in his presence? Maybe one of the best analogs for us in terms of applying this, because of the context of festival worship, is our own praise in the church community. Do you delight gathering with one another and praising God here at church? It is a joy, isn't it? Now, I'm not trying to suggest that every Sunday morning we wake up just exhilarated for it, right? We know better than that. And yet, We express joy, what we believe about God, in our approaching Him at church, and we're able to delight together uniquely in Him. And if I can put on my family pastor hat for just a moment, one thing I really love and appreciate about working on the children's side is I often get this unique experience, I get to interact with parents as they've arrived, after they've gone through the experience of getting their kids dressed and in the car and all the way to church. And listen, sometimes I'll say to you, I'll say, hi, how are you doing today? And I can see in your eye, you're like, I'm surviving, you know, we're here. And I say, praise God for that. Because here's what you're doing. You're saying, we so find the presence of God precious. We so delight in worshiping God that we're going to show our children that they should too. You're imparting a legacy that God is precious to you and therefore precious to your family. That is one of the values of church as a regular habit, discipline in our lives. It communicates our hearts, what we delight in. How odd it would be to forsake the gathering and not want to delight in God now, only to be anticipating a heaven where we worship him forever. This is practice. May we continue to delight in worshiping our God. A second aspect of this is we delight in the security of God's presence. Let's read verse three. He continues, even. The sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Here, the psalmist uses a nature metaphor to help us understand what's so precious about this presence. The presence of God is like a bird's nest. Now, you don't have to be really an expert in birds to follow the image here, right? When you think about a nest, it's in a protected place. That protects the eggs and the young, but also inherent to the construction of a nest is a sense of warmth and provision and security. It's funny how a nest is nothing like our homes, and yet we see this common theme of of how it works. It's homey in a sense. And the author is saying when he views the presence of God, he sees it that way. He sees it as securing, as stabilizing where he wants to be. David makes a very similar point in Psalm 27. So, please listen as I read verses four and five from Psalm 27. David says, Excuse me, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent, he will lift me high upon a rock. David makes the same correlation. He says, the presence of God is beautiful and precious. And in God's presence, I'm concealed from trouble. I'm protected. I am secured there. You can imagine David, I don't know the context of when David wrote Psalm 27, but you can imagine David fleeing from Saul, maybe sleeping in a cave somewhere in the wilderness, praying out to God saying, I want to dwell with God and be protected from my enemies. And this all culminates in our first blessed statement in verse 4. The psalmist says, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. So here's the first part of a blessed life. It is to know God and to worship him. A blessed life involves knowing God and worshiping him. It involves absolutely delighting in who he is and delighting in the experience, the life that is committed to praising him. What are you delighting in? You see, the psalm is going to do something for us here. It's going to show the very high values and priorities of the psalmist. And it's going to challenge us then to say, do I value God that way? And if not, what am I valuing instead? In fact, we can do this. Our main idea is that blessing is found in the precious presence of God. But we could replace presence of God with any idol. Maybe I'm seeking blessing to be found in the precious money I've accrued. Is that what we would say? And we can can place whatever it is, but the psalm challenges challenges us to consider what are we delighting in. It's that age-old application of what are the idols I'm worshiping? What has become ultimate to me? Here's one way we can assess this. I've I've used this a lot in the youth group as we think through this question. But think about this. What what is it that I'm most emotionally attached to? The reason I ask this one is because it resonates with my own sin? Like when something gets taken away from you, does it lead to irrational anger? And if so, that outburst might reveal too close of an attachment to it. Perhaps that thing or that person or that experience has become godlike in our estimation. Perhaps it's become our delight. That would be replacing the worship, but how about replacing the security? What is it that we are dependent on What are we looking to secure us like a nest? I just used the financial example, but maybe that's the most common thing that comes to mind. That we say, yes, I can trust God and delight in Him as long as the bank account's in a certain place. Because that secures me. Now the psalmist, his delight is purely in the presence of God. May we delight in Him. Let's move to our second point, the second aspect of this blessing in 5 to 8, our strength is in the Lord. We're really just going to use one sub-point to sort of walk our way through this section, which is this. We are strengthened by the Lord throughout our pilgrimage. Let's read verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. With this second blessed statement, we realize that a blessed person is strengthened by God, which is, I think right away, a countercultural statement. Because wouldn't we think a person who's blessed is already strong? You know, the blessed person is the one who's who's vital and doing great. But that's not what it says here. The blessed person here needs to be strengthened. There's the assumption here that blessed people are weak people. We're going to help connect those dots as we go. Here's the first thing we learn about these people who need to be strengthened. In their heart are the highways to Zion. With this poetic phrase, the psalmist returns to the language of a pilgrimage. We're continuing to think about a pilgrim on that journey to Jerusalem, and he uses it over the next few verses as like a microcosm of the Christian life. And it's going to connect to our own pilgrimage in terms of our lives on earth before God. And the first thing about the individual who's being strengthened by God is something spiritual. There's something internal. In their heart are highways to Zion. Zion. This highway, this path he's talking about, is not the physical path they walk down to get to Jerusalem. Rather, it's the spiritual trajectory of their hearts. Internally, where are they headed? See, we know that the natural heart is a pathless wilderness. It is headed to destruction. But the heart renewed by Jesus Christ is a heart that is already intending to worship God. The pilgrim might not be in Jerusalem yet, but in his heart, he's already worshiping. He already knows God. You see, the one who's strengthened by the Lord, the blessed one, he's not primarily defined by the external conformity to whatever image he's pursuing. Rather, he's defined by internal devotion to God. What's going on with your heart in this journey? Because there have been many, many people who have claimed to be Christian, who said they're on this journey, grew up in Christian homes, who regularly attended church's tradition, who pray around mealtimes and would say they're doing this. But the psalmist holds this bar a little higher. The one who is on this journey is one who in their heart adores and worships God, is headed towards God. We hear more about this journey at the beginning of verse six. He says, as they go through the valley of Baca. Now, the valley of Baca requires a little explanation there. The word Baca is very similar to another word which means to weep. It was actually mostly used to describe a particular kind of tree. It's like a balsam tree, where resin would drip down the side of the bark. So the tree looked like it was crying. That's the idea. And the psalmist uses the language poetically to say this this is the valley of weeping. This is the portion of the journey that is hardest. It's very likely that on this path to Jerusalem, there would have been a stretch that was dry and arid and waterless and difficult. And he says here, on your pilgrimage, it's going to get difficult at times. There will be valleys of weeping. We know this, don't we? We've experienced the valleys of weeping. You may be here and be in one of these valleys right now. We need to be strengthened. The encouragement comes in the second half of verse 6. But he says they make it a place of springs. The early rain covers it with pools. We discover something transformative about the Valley of Baca. While it is a universal experience, so there are going to be really hard parts of this journey, that God strengthens us through that valley. We see here that he, he brings, it. he turns this waterless place into a place of springs. He brings cool water and refreshment to this difficult hardship. It it changes. You know, when I was writing this, I was thinking to myself, how will I evoke to the people uh, what a dry and desert climate is like? Then I looked out the window and remembered, I live in New Mexico. We know what this is like, right? We all know what it's like to be dried out and hot. And then that cold water comes and how refreshing that is. And God provides this for us. Now, even as I say that, though, if we just pause for a moment, it can almost sound frustrating to say that God is just going to come along and remove the valley of Baca, because that doesn't seem consistent with our experience, does it? Often our valleys of weeping can be extended. It seems long-term. Sometimes there's no clear ending in sight. And an approach to this that says, hey, God's just going to fix it for you, you know, turn that frown upside down, it's all going to be good doesn't always resonate necessarily with our experience in it. I think the psalmist is after something deeper, a more robust approach to this pilgrimage and a richer understanding of what strengthening is. If we look at the beginning of verse seven, he continues that they go from strength to strength. You see, this is a step-by-step expedition. This is a long-term trek. One foot in front of the other, Through the whole journey. And the way God strengthens us is step by step. The strengthening of God is a steady drip of cool water in our tongue that keeps us going. It's very important because remember, this Christian life happens by faith. You see, if it all gets moved away, then sometimes there might be this temptation to think, you know, I completed the journey because I'm strong. I was able, with my fortitude, to march right through the valley of Baca. That's not usually how it works. Instead, God strengthens us in such a way that he shows us how dependent we are on him. It becomes clear, the only way I'm going to get through this valley is because of God. Because he's strengthening me. Because he's providing the sustenance. He's keeping me going. He's going to make it a place of springs. So that when I'm through the valley, I look back at it, and it becomes a testament of the faithfulness of God in my life. And do you see then how the blessed life is not avoiding suffering— The blessed life is being strengthened by God in suffering. And that is the hardest thing to say when you're in it. And yet, this is what God's word tells us and comforts us. That we will be able to look back on these valleys. And in those lowest moments, strengthened by our Lord, we see that he is good. We see that he is faithful. And here's some comfort for us as we pursue this in the second half of verse 7. He says, Each one appears... Before God in Zion. Every one of these pilgrims who genuinely believes in God and whose heart are the highways, every one of them will appear before God. They will finish this journey. They will arrive in the temple. They will appear before God. If you are on this journey, if you are a genuine believer, in your heart are the highways to God and you are being strengthened by Him through the valleys right now. Let me encourage you you will appear before God in His presence. He says in Jude 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, we will finish this race by his strength. And it is hard to see, and yet the psalmist is confident here that every single one, through the strength of God, will make it through. And the section concludes with a prayer for strength in verse 8. He says, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. You see, after the psalmist has declared what God is going to do, he then prays for God to do it. This is a common biblical formulation you see, to state a reality about God and then to ask God to do it. Like, you're a forgiving God, please forgive me. It's very common. And here you see the psalmist doing this. He says, God's going to strengthen me. He's going to keep me going. And he's going to keep me going in such a way that I depend more on him so God, please strengthen me. Even in the title he gives to God, he shows God's strength compared to his weakness. He says, God of hosts. This is the God who leads angelic armies. He says, Give ear, o God of Jacob. This is the God who strengthened every Israelite who came before. That God, hear my prayer. If you've heard everything I've said these last few verses and you say, I still feel like I'm at the bottom of this valley, then let me encourage you to start here. Pray for strength. Reach out to the God who strengthens you. There is blessing in his strengthening. And we're presented here now with two options. Two options for the blessed life, if we just pause and assess for a moment. Let's consider first sort of the 2023 American depiction of the blessed life. I thought through a lot of options here. I'm sure this is imperfect, but this is like a broad umbrella I got. To feel good. Like that, that generally seems to sort of capture the therapeutic drive that in a lot of popular thought today. To feel good. The problem with to feel good as our ultimate for a blessed life is that the value of baka means we're all going to not feel good at some point. We need a more robust understanding of a blessed life that includes enduring hardship. So option number two by Psalm 84 here is that the blessed life is to be strengthened by God so that even the hardships point to his faithfulness in us as he brings us before his presence forever. Faith Church, are you depending on him in your pilgrimage? As you're walking, is your life marked by day-to-day faithfulness? Is your Christian life defined by a daily dependence by daily prayerfulness. This is how the Christian life typically operates. There are sometimes moments of significant growth. There are sometimes very massive movements that we can point to and say, that was a significant part of my life. I don't mean to diminish that. But in general, God typically seems to work in our growth through the regular means of grace, day to day, week after week, year after year. May we depend on him through it. Let's move to our third and final section, verses 9 to 12. Our trust is in the Lord. We also trust in the Lord. First, we'll see that we trust a satisfying God. Let's read verse 9. He says, Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. Now, in verse 9 here, it's a unique verse where the Israelite is praying to God as his shield and defender. But then he says, look on your anointed. So he's asking God to remember the king, the Israeli king. So most likely, this is a prayer that has sort of a national sense to it. Like, Be our national defender as as Israel, and remember your king. Preserve us as a people and the king you have chosen. Which means it's a step away from us, right? We don't have a promise of national defense in that same way, nor do we have a national ruler who's representative of that relationship. However, God does defend us, doesn't he? And he defends us through a chosen king, doesn't he? Through Jesus Christ. Jesus, who appeared and said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He inaugurated a kingdom. He then preached the Sermon on the Mount, teaching the ethics of this kingdom. And he taught parables which describe the nature of that kingdom. He then died on a cross. So instead of then overcoming the Roman Empire, he dies on a cross with a sign above his head that says, King of the Jews. And he establishes the victory of that kingdom. And now rules and reigns and that kingdom will come and will reign forever. That Jesus is where we have our defense. Our need to be secured, our need to be provided for, is fully satisfied in him. This is why we can trust in Jesus. We can trust the Jesus who protects us. I remember when I was in high school, I would hang out a lot with my older brother and his friends. They were very big influence on me. And they were very spiritually earnest young men. So this is a positive impact. And I remember one time we were in McDonald's, which I frequented a lot back in those days. And we were sitting at a table. And it was one of those tables where it had the paper on top that you could color on. You know what I'm talking about? So my friend here, he had just read this book and he wrote on the paper, he wrote, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And I remember that was profound for me. Now I think a little later in life, I thought I had sort of outgrown it. I'm like, yeah, it's sort of a cliche formulation. I don't like that. But now, studying this this week, I came all the way back around. I said, that, that pretty clearly defines it, isn't it? If you have Jesus and you have nothing else, you have everything you need. Jesus is all satisfying. Again, we're challenged to consider what we find satisfying. But first, let me just pause and ask. Do you know Jesus? You're with us today. You do not know Christ. Let me plea with you to repent from your sin and to put faith in Jesus because he's satisfying. He is the king. His kingdom is coming. I would plea with you to talk to someone today about this Christ, about this good news where satisfaction is found. He makes the point even more poignantly in verse 10. Let's move to verse 10, which he continues. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Perhaps the most famous verse in this psalm, I think most powerfully depicts how satisfying God is. It once again gives us two choices. Let's think through those briefly. You've got one choice, which is to be in God's house for one day. And in this scenario, you're on sort of the fringes, right? You're the doorkeeper. You're the door guy. You're sort of barely in there, and you're only there for one day. The other option is you get a 1,000 days in the very heart of the tents of wickedness, committing any sin you want, getting whatever pleasure you can get from it. The question is, which is better? Psalmist makes it clear that one day in the house of God is far better. But Why? The reason is because no matter how long you sought pleasure in the tents of wickedness, it would never satisfy you. It will overpromise and it will underdeliver. And yet a single day as a doorkeeper in God's house is where we'll find complete satisfaction and fulfillment. Jesus redefined satisfaction for us in John 6 when he fed the 5,000. And then afterward, he's teaching the disciples and followers about it. And he says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. You see, the people Jesus fed that day, by the next mealtime, they were hungry again. But those who believe in Christ find that the very desires God gave them, He designed for them to be satisfied in Him. That's what the presence of God provides for us. That's the hope of heaven. All of our desires complete and fulfilled in Christ. Let me ask you once again. What do you seek satisfaction in? Which one of those tents of wickedness continues to distract you from Christ? Because here's what happens. When we give praise and adoration to this other thing, it always minimizes the praise and adoration due to God. It is robbing God of the very glory he is due. Let's look at a final part of this as we close. We also trust God because of his goodness. Let's read the first half of verse 11. The psalmist says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. See, we trust God in part because of who he is. We've already established that he's a shield. He's a protector. But he's also a sun. The sun depicts the warmth, again, provision, and sort of a blanket description, using nature, of God's goodness just pouring down on us. When I think about this, I think of the nature of heaven. And the author C.S. Lewis, in a lot of his fiction, he tries to depict what he thinks heaven might be like. It's not a theological description. It's more of a literary evocation of what it might be like. And in a lot of his works, he uses the same kind of image. He does this in Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle, and in Paralandra, and in The Great Divorce. And in each of these, he describes heaven not as something sort of immaterial and vague or hazy, but actually extra sharp, extra concrete, sharp but not painful, the kind of thing that if our senses were to experience, it would be overwhelming for us. So when I think about God as the sun, yes, we see that light streaming through the clouds all the time. And since we have the presence of God in our lives right now, we have that sun on our face. But when we're in heaven, we're going to have full exposure to this sun, being blinded by the white-hot glory of God. That's what we anticipate. That's what we look to. He is the sun and shield. But also, he does good to us. Verse eleven continues: The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And here's where, if we were to read this verse out of context, we might get the whole depiction of the blessed life flipped. Right? If we only read verse eleven, we'd say, "Of course." The blessed life is those who trust in God, and in response to that trust, He gives us stuff. But that hasn't been consistent with what we've read. The blessed life started with delighting in God. The blessed life involved being secured by Him, it involved going through immense suffering and being strengthened by Him through it. And so, what is verse 11 trying to tell us? Well, two things to keep in mind. One, is that the Lord doesn't exactly define for us here the favor and honor, but I think it would be silly for us to immediately define favor and honor here as material blessings. In other words, when we said Jesus plus nothing equals everything, what we mean here is that verse 11 can be true for someone who has nothing. You can have nothing materially, and yet if you have Jesus, he has bestowed unmerited favor and honor on you. You have everything. But also, second, God does love, love to give good gifts. He is a gracious God. He loves to give to us. In fact, He's going to do it forever. And so, when God does choose to bring something into your life, it is appropriate to say, What a blessing. God has blessed me, and I can trust in Him. I don't trust in Him for those things, I trust in Him because of who He is. And then we come to our final blessed statement, verse 12. O Lord of hosts, blesses the one who trusts in you. As we close, do you trust in God? Are you delighting in Him? Are you being strengthened by Him? Because that life, that life is a blessing. It is good. It is what we were designed for. And as we continue in that today, not only is it a joy with God's presence right now, but it points us forward. And we can anticipate. His future perfect presence forever. Let's close in prayer.